This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 208 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. I wanted to again point out that this podcast is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. Go grab you some. Do yourself a favor. Yep. It is delicious. We use some uh, this, this week on deviled eggs to like mix in with the deviled eggs mixture mm-hmm. it was really good yes it was so great you guys will miss out if you don't get some yep it's one of the top 10 selling hot sauce in all of america and the number one habanero based hot sauce i thought uh we would tell people real quick about one each week since there are seven different flavors so the one we're going to talk about tonight is actually the mildest Mm-hmm. Other one, it's only twelve hundred and seventy on the Scoville scale. And that is the jalapeno hot sauce. It's a classic jalapeno sauce done the right way. Only the freshest peppers are used for the sauce. It's the mildest of all sauces, but packs a rich flavor and gentle heat. So you can pick this up online at shopelucateco.com, or you can pick it up at most of your major grocery stores such as Walmart or Target. So. Sounds great. All right. We're going to have a fun show tonight. First, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you all for everything you do. Yes, God bless you guys. We've been praying extra hard for you all and um, all the people on the front line. And just stay safe. And um, thank you for keeping us safe. Yep, greatly appreciate it. Another week, Tracy, of people sending us messages Mm -hmm. uh, that are struggling right now. And we are glad that you're doing it. So No, we are, because honestly, it kind of helps us a little bit. I've been struggling myself this week. Yeah, it is funny how helping somebody else can kind of help yourself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's therapeutic. Yes, it so is. Just remember that if you're struggling, you know, and, and I'm going to call somebody out for a good thing. Sam Farrell is a fantastic person absolutely sam has had his struggles this year he'll be the first to tell you and when the the times really got tough for him he reached out to other people that were struggling and used that as his therapy mm-hmm. and i couldn't be more proud of somebody you know and we get to see sam this weekend he'll be at the the live event in pigeon forge and uh, i wanted to give him a little bit of credit where credit's due he literally is somebody that will go out of his way to help somebody else, even when his times of struggling are as tough as anybody else's. Absolutely. He's an amazing person. Thank you, honey. And we love you so much. So and we try to keep the group as as supportive as possible. Mm-hmm. 4,800 people in there. There's, there's always somebody who will jump in and support you no matter what time of the day it is because there's people from all over the world, all different time zones. So if you have a problem at 2 o'clock in the morning, post it. 
and there's still going to be somebody there that's going to respond at two o'clock in the morning. That's, that's the beauty right. of it. That's I guess the negative right. part uh, when you have that many people, you know, um, not everybody is going to see things eye to eye. So we try to keep that as, as uh, calm as we can and we try to keep it drama free. And for the mm-hmm. most part, I think we do a pretty good job. Yeah, everybody's um, great. You know, so that's kind of where we're at. So if you guys, um, want to call the suicide hotline uh, the number is 800-273-8255 or the text is 741-741 all right tracy tonight's story is shrouded in mystery wow i'm interested in hearing about that And also at the end of this show, we've got our newest edition of Fear of the Week with author Leslie Fear. So we started, uh, we were initially was not going to do it anymore. We decided to do it and we're going to do it every other Sunday. And tonight is that first one. It's one of many episodes that we've done that will not be exceptionally long. But if you give, uh, we're going to give you pretty much everything that we have on it. So it's... uh, it, it's a little different than some of the episodes we've done. We're going to be reading a few of the uh, some comments and stuff from people that I wouldn't say experts, but they they have knowledge of the fields mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about. And um, so we're going to try to cover as much, and that that's the best that I could do on this situation. But I really wanted to cover it because it's one of the more well known UFO cases in the state of Kentucky. Okay, good. Well, so, if we don't cover these things, nobody ever knows about it. Right. Now, as far as my opinion on this case, obviously, we'll get into that as we go along, get your opinion on it. Uh, I don't know really where I stand on this, except for the fact that I'm surprised it's not a bigger story out there than what it is. And like I said, we all know my feelings towards UFOs and stuff. It's not I'm not exactly an expert in the field, so it may even be bigger than I've realized out there to people who are in the know. This is the story of the UFO CSX train crash of 2002 in Paintsville, Kentucky, or more commonly known as the Paintsville UFO. Okay. I will say that this story has its share of supporters, as well as a share of people who think it's a hoax. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't really know either way. So I guess we'll just give you some details, and we'll let you guys decide for yourself. So I'm going to give you the basic story on the driver's actual report that was turned in and then some of the info on some people that uh, might have some technical knowledge of railroads and the working uh, of trains themselves. Now, if you look this story up, you can actually find the engineer's complete uh, wording. Now, I don't know. I really haven't seen if this was like an official report made to the railroad Mm -hmm. or if this is something he just wrote afterwards or as i've stated some people think it was just a hoax all the way around there are no names for the conductor or the engineer um so that makes it obviously suspect uh as to whether it's real whether it's not so i don't have any of that information for you but if it was also a top secret thing that got leaked then maybe that's why there's no name yeah so keep that in mind but you can find this full thing out there so but i'm going to give you the the basics of it so the story was first reported by the director of the national ufo reporting center by the name of peter davenport this was on this supposedly happened on january 14th 2002 just after midnight CSX coal train with a two locomotive engines was leaving the railroad station in Russell, Kentucky. 
It was supposed to be headed to Shelbyana, Kentucky, and that's about a 114-mile trip. Never even heard of that place. Yeah, it's more towards a little different part of the state than what we're in. So. Okay. This was a familiar trip for the engineers. They'd made this trip on several occasions. It's a very scenic trip. It's uh, uh, the kind of track goes mostly along like a wooded, you know, woods and farmland and stuff. So yeah. there's not a whole lot out there. Lots of wildlife near the tracks. Uh, while it's typical, especially in the wintertime, while they're out there searching for their food and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, this incident happened at mile post 42, and there's so much wildlife there that this area is called Wild Kingdom. Oh, dang. So around 247, the engineer says he knew it was that time because his watch stopped working, and it still to this day is still stopped at 247. His watch and the entire electrical systems on both locomotives went haywire. So they're coming up around the bend. That's what CCR said. <laughs> <laughs> the bend at milepost 42, and the conductor sees some upcoming lights. Now, this normally means that there's another train coming on the train tracks beside him. So you got two tracks oh, side okay. by side, mm-hmm. okay? One for coming and one for going. Just to give you a little bit of imagery of how this is set up. So you've got the river, then you've got the number one track, then the number two track, and then you got a mountain that goes straight up. And that's the case because the area where the tracks are were actually carved out of the mountains for the purpose oh, cool. of the train track. So that's there's really no room there except for the two tracks, river and mountain. So that's it. I bet those tracks are real close together. That'd be so scary, passing each other. Yeah, I would think so. Well, it's no different than the subways. Well, I guess. that's true, and that's pretty scary. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, it was customary if, I guess, like, you know, if you're riding down the road and you've got your brights on and you see another car, mm-hmm. you turn your brights off. Well, they say that it was customary in the situation when you saw the vehicle coming, or the, not the vehicle, but the other train passing, that you would, quote, unquote, kill the lights. Now, that was the word that the engineer used in this um, statement that he put out. And that exact terminology is going to be important a little later on. The fact that he said they killed the lights. So around the corner, the train's computer started flashing in and out right after they passed around. The speed recorder went completely nuts. And both locomotive engines died. Okay, that's not good. (laughs) The engineer said that alarm bells started going off all throughout the entire train. And at this point, the engineer and the conductor noticed that the lights were not from another train that they saw up ahead. It was three different objects. And they had some type of searchlights. And it looked like that they were... Uh, scanning the river for something. Uh-huh. The first object was only about 10 to 12 feet off of the tracks. They described this thing as silver, metallic, multiple colored lights near the bottom and near the middle. They did not see any kind of opening or any windows or anything of that kind on the craft. So it was about 10 feet tall and approximately 20 feet long. So if you think about it, it's really the size of like a, a, a large family room of a house. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it from that standpoint, yeah. that just give you some kind of perspective. So it wasn't huge, but it's a good sized craft. 
Because of the fact that both engines were dead when they turned that corner to come upon the craft, the train was a lot more quiet than it normally would have been. So the craft probably did not hear them. The train was going about 30 miles an hour, and it had 16,000 tons behind it because of the fact it was loaded down with coal, and it crashed into the first object. The UFO tried to react, but it wasn't quite quick enough. It clipped the top of the first locomotive engine, and then it skipped back, uh, slicing a big chunk out of the second locomotive engine, and then the first two coal uh, cards sustained some damage. The other two UFOs vanished almost instantly. So according to the engineer, when the engine lost power that initiated the emergency brakes, it took approximately a mile and a half to two miles for the train to come to a complete stop after the impact. Shortly after stopping, power came back on, and then they called the dispatch center in Jacksonville, Florida, and explained to them the experience that they just had, and were told to inspect the cars to see if they would be able to stay on the track, and if they could safely stay on the rails, they were told to limp into milepost 60, where the Paintsville yard was, and they, you know, they pointed out that this Paintsville yard was no longer in full operations. They used it for some stuff, but it wasn't a normal operating yard. So that would have given it a little bit of more privacy than normal. So, so they, but everything started working right back on the train yeah, thing. Yeah, everything started working. That's amazing. Once they came to a complete stop, everything kicked back on. Do I sound like a man? No, why? I don't know. I feel like I'm sounding manly. <laughs> no, I think you're good. Okay. Now, as for your looks, that's a different story, but you sound fine. (laughs) (laughs) So what they found upon getting out of the train and doing the inspection was that the cab on the second locomotive was demolished and was smoking. Oh, well. well, Now, they're talking about just the cab part, not the bottom, not just where the people would have been sitting. But, you know, when you said how it hit like the coal, I'm surprised something didn't start firing you know like a fire i guess maybe not yeah i mean i guess if coal caught on fire it would burn yeah but not i don't think like but they didn't have no idea it was demolished or anything no no not till they got out oh man the two coal cars were pretty um dinged up it looked like they had been like beat beat to death with a hammer they said Mm -hmm. like just a bunch of little dinks yeah every time i've ever seen like a coal car they're all dinged up yeah anyway i don't even know you know the difference but all three looked fine as far as, as being able to move along the track without incidents, so that's what they did. They finally get to the Paintsville yard. It was 5.15 a.m. They found something odd when they arrived there, though. All of the large overhead lights that you would expect to be on were noticeably dark, mm-hmm. so there was no lights. The only lights that they could see were from vehicles that they assumed were railroad officials that were kind of parked near the end of the track waiting on them. They pull up to a stop. They get out, and they begin unloading their grips off the train. I have no idea what the grips are. I tried to look it up. I looked up grips. I looked up grips on train. I, so I don't know what the grips are, but obviously it's some kind of a train terminology. Hmm. So get they, they pull up to get unload their grips off the train. But as they're doing this, they heard what they described as like an army of workers tending to the train. They could hear guys uh, running back and forth. They could hear vehicle doors uh, shutting. They heard guys running around. And and they said there were some guys in weird outfits and lights coming from all directions. 
I don't know what they meant by weird outfits, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming like hazmat, hazmat suits yeah. or something like that. But what they noticed is the absence of any railroad officials. None of these people were railroad officials. So who were these people? The engineer said that a man by the name of Ferguson shook his hand and asked him to follow them into the old office there at the Paintsville Depot. They still have no idea who these people are, but they go inside anyway. The engineer and the conductor are then asked question after question, literally hundreds of questions. They were then told that they would have to be medically tested before they could leave for their protection. The engineers asked respectfully to speak to his road foreman or his train master, and not only were they basically denied, they also confiscated the conductor's cell phone. Shit, so they man. had, you know, the, the cell phone strictly for work, My. and they took that from him. Several hours passed, and by this time, they were led outside of the old train yard office. That's not where the strangeness stopped, though. They noticed that the two engines and the two coal cars had been disconnected from the rest of the train. There was a commotion going on about four tracks over, and they look over, and there was this huge tent that they had been set up that wasn't there when they first got there. And there were some lights and stuff inside of the tent, so it glowed so they could tell that's exactly what it was. Obviously, their guess was the, the missing engines and the two coal cars was what was underneath that tent. For what reason, they weren't 100% sure. Hell, that had to be a huge tent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could imagine. Good grief. <laughs> anyway, so now they were let off of the property, and they were told due to national security that their silence would be very much appreciated. <laughs> Worded it nicely. (laughs) They were put in a railroad vehicle and taken to Martin, Kentucky. Once they reached Martin, Kentucky, they were again questioned. This time, railroad officials were present and they were drug tested. They were then sent to Shelbyana, which was the original destination, and given eight hours of rest. And then they took another train back to Russell. They said on... um, on the way back that they passed the Paintsville station and there was no sight of the locomotive engine, the coal cars and no tent and no people on their way back. That's pretty amazing how fast they can get that stuff up and back, you know, down real quick like right. that. Man, I'd been freaking out. So obviously that's really, that's the story. Yeah. That's really all there is to the story. So it's like I said, there's not a lot to dig out. And almost anything you look up, that's all you're going to get. Uh, so what I did do is I wanted to talk about a few different things that might help. So the first thing that, that I'm going to do is I'm going to read this this uh, little section from you here. This is listed as an update on one of the sites that I went to. And it says this is an interesting account from a nearby resident. This person says, I live near Paintsville, actually in, in, in a, a rural community nine miles north of the town. I'm pretty well tied into the community and monitor the EMS, police, and fire frequently. Our local ham club works with and has members from local EM agencies, and I just heard about this incident today. The railroads around here, CSX, pretty much take care of their own business. Very little is ever mentioned of a railroad incident. If someone is hit and killed on the tracks, there may be a mention on the local news, but that's about it. 
Our local news does not really seek the story. If you call with a story, they might print it, but not go in-depth reporting. My supervisor knows more than I do about the goings-on in town, and he had not heard of this either. It is possible for this to have happened and been kept quiet, especially if it happened between two towns like Russell and Paintsville. There's a lot of the riverbank that is not visible to the public through this area. I happen to know a gentleman who works for them as a safety engineer. I will try and contact the individual and ask him about this. We spoke last year, so I think he knew about it. He would have told me. Then it goes on to say, The original statement seems credible and the newer information is understandable. My father has ties to the railroad industry and confirms that their security is very tight overall. If anyone has additional information on the incident, I would love to hear it. So nothing is more fairly distributed than common sense. No one thinks he needs more of it than he already has. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. To find out that, the first of all, and we're going to read some more stuff here in a minute, but first of all, you've got a lot of things going on here. As I said earlier, we don't have the names of who these people are. We've got a date. We've got locations, um, but there's really not anything out there. A lot, now, a lot of these UFO cases, I'll go on MUFON's website, and I will look and, and find something, and I didn't really notice anything on there. And I think that's why a lot of people are skeptical on whether somebody just wrote this and put it out, and it never really happened. So, what are your thoughts so far on what you've heard? I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, there has got to be something that's happened. I feel like there's something that's happened. But what would you base that on? Because what's to say that somebody like one of us didn't just sit there and write the story and then put it out there and then like the telephone game, it gets spread and we're like, we're, t- we're talking about it tonight. We, d- we don't know that it happened. Now you can't ever really say that an abduction or a UFO sighting or something happened, but you can usually point to some credible evidence that something happened. Right. We don't have anything don't have here. Anything. To say that it happened. We don't have any witnesses. We don't have anybody other than these two people, and we don't even know their name. So that's, I think that's the part that kind of throws it all in there. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of half and half on the situation. So you're cream. I'm cream. (laughs) Are you (laughs) non-dairy? So I went digging a little bit, and I found an article about this that was like some type of a website that was forums and stuff for railroad employees and i found this little thing that i thought was interesting this gentleman's name is mtm engineer and he wrote this is the the heading on it says a consistent feature of ufo reports is to include how the electronics and watches go wacko when the engine shut down but gee they set the pneumatics into emergency question mark he says, um, I'm not sure how much you know about modern equipment, but locomotives equipped with electronic air brakes equipment will initiate an application when a power loss occurs in the system. Anytime you open the breaker on the EAB equipment, you can hear the system's sol- solenoids initiate a penalty application and open the power cutoff. Granted, this piece of creative fiction still got the technical stuff wrong. Unless you have a kicker, Train air brakes do not go into emergency for any sort of penalty brake application. 
they reduce the equalizing reservoir to zero at a service rate. I don't care if it's a brake system, power loss, uh, alert or timeout, failure to acknowledge a cab signal or LSL overspeed. All of them drop the error at the service rate, not by an emergency application. As for the stopping distances, I agree that's just absurd. I, too, suspect the person knows something about equipment, but not enough to hold any credibility. So what this guy is saying, basically, is according to the story, when the engines shut off, the emergency brakes were activated, and it took a mile and a half to two miles to stop. This guy, who works for the railway, probably is an engineer, since it says MTM engineer, he says that that's BS. There's no possible way that the emergency brakes are set to just to come on when like you lose power or something. It's not set up that way. So that that's he said that's BS, which makes him skeptical of the story. He also says that at the speed they were going, uh, there's no way it would have t- taken them a mile and a half to two miles to stop. No, I get that. I get that. But I don't understand why he, I mean, of course, I don't know anything about it, but it seems like there would be some kind of system on there when that happens that it automatically starts to break. Well, he says there is stuff like that set for that, but it's not losing power is what does it. So that's okay. that, wouldn't emer- that wouldn't kick the emergency brakes on. Okay. All right, so then I've got another one on this same website. This person says, I started off believing this until I read the line about killed our lights for the approaching train. Had the storytellers had the storyteller said we dimmed our lights, he or she would have had me going until I realized, duh, wouldn't the crew have known about any approaching traffic from DS? I'm not a disbeliever in UFO phenomenon nor a believer, but this story is just pure fiction, I think. Unless you're on a single-track railroad, this is on this site still, it's very common to not have the dispatcher tell you about any opposing traffic. In multiple-track territory, there's no point for them to tell you unless you're doing something out of the ordinary, such as holding at a CP or crossing over to run uh, run around someone. I take no issue with the quote-unquote kill-the-lights line. Remember we mentioned that earlier, and I said the terminology. Dimming the lights for opposing train at night is commonplace, and the term kill is commonly used by crews in place of dim when referring to dimming them. Some crews will also shut the lights off completely as they pass another train, in addition, and dimming them as they approach to the other. So my guess is that shutting them off completely uh, was a carryover from a timetable or a train order operation before the use of radio was widespread when you needed to see this, the opposing train's number boards in order to ID the right one. So he's saying that the one guy's got a problem with the fact that he said he killed the lights mm-hmm. instead of dimming them. But this guy says a lot of people say kill the lights when they actually are meaning dim. They don't mean they're going to come gotcha. completely yeah. off. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways to pick this thing apart, but... The reality of it is, we don't know if it's true, we don't know if it's not true, but if it is true, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's and, very. And it does sound like something. Now, I'm not one to know the technicals of trains, so I can understand why somebody says, well, yeah. this doesn't make sense. That, But as far as the actual story, I think the story is believable. Now, whether it actually happened or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I do think that sounds exactly like 
the, the kind of cover-ups that I believe happen. Right. I mean, it is believable. That's just, you know, that's why I was saying I'm kind of, I'm kind of on the fence, but more to lean into it is a, a true story. So anyway, it's not, not the longest story in the world, but I thought it was an important one because it is a local story mm-hmm. and I'm interested in what other people think. So and when you listen to this, just, you know, respond to the, uh, the group and, and say what your thoughts are on it and we'll get a little discussion going. Yeah. My uncle Gene used to work for them. CSX? On the railroad. Mm-hmm, on the railroad. So did my uncle Charlie. But neither one of them are here. I'd ask him, but. Yeah, that would be cool to be able to mm-hmm. ask yeah somebody who so so there's a there's a good one if you work for csx railroad and and you are especially in, in the kentucky area back in 2002 when this supposedly happened i would be interested to know if that's something that gets talked about at all right so i mean yeah why wouldn't you talk about it yeah well unless you're told not to talk about well, it that's true <laughs> there's a good reason why you wouldn't how talk long can, about how it. many years can they hold that threat to you though uh forever ever forever no oh, okay well don't but, do it then all right so we got that done. Uh, we've got a couple of things to discuss, and then we've got Fear of the Week. It's back now. It's mm-hmm. on Sunday. This is our first one. And uh, Leslie's going to tell us a little bit about gangrene. Oh, yummy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the smell awaits. Mm. But anyways, real quick, uh, we want to talk about uh, some important show topics. But first, we've got a quick sponsor break. The live event coming up this Saturday in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Woo-hoo. We are very excited, but there, there are some things that I want to get out of the way. First and foremost, Matt and Adam from Graveyard uh, Tales had to withdraw from being there. They've got some obvious concerns. They both work with the general public. I know mm-hmm. uh, uh, Matt, for example, he's you know a, a masseuse, so he's got his hands over people, all over people all the time. And then they both have some friends and family members that are vulnerable and high risk. And they just decided at this point in time that it was probably better for them uh, not to really be out in a public setting like that. And I completely understand. Uh, so we we went ahead and moved ahead. And um, like I said, we've done everything we could possibly do to make this a very safe event. We've got uh, we've strategically lowered the number of seats so we could social distance. This is in an American Legion post that has not been open since March. So it's not been, you know, it's it's going to be as about as safe a place as you could be in because there's not been anybody in there. I know they've already went in there and disinfected everything, and they're going to do it again uh, the day before the show. We're going to have plenty of hand sanitizer on hand. I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have plenty of masks available. Uh, Sevierville is a county where you have to wear a mask out in public and uh, when you're uh, inside as far as I don't think you have to wear it outside, but when you're when you're in a public place like a store or a, an event or something, you have to wear a mask. So bring your mask if you got one. If not, we got you covered. Don't worry about that. But uh, like I said, I think we've done everything we can to make this as safe as an environment as we can. The place seats 90 people, and I think we'll probably have less than 40 there with the way it's set up. So plenty of plenty of, uh, of space. Everybody will have masks on and all that stuff. So I think it's still going to be a very fun time. But since Graveyard Tales could not be there, we got our buddy Justin Rimmel from A Serious Circumstances to fill in. And there's talk that paranormal investigator Joe Pulley, who lives in the area, is going to have a list of places 
that if somebody wanted to go check out while they're down there, they could of some of the haunted locations. Oh, and he's awesome. got and he's got a bunch of stories uh, from the area that uh, you might not have heard anywhere. Sounds so, great. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So anyway, so that's what we got on there. Tracy, what do we got as far as iTunes reviews and uh, Patreon? All right. And um, we have Nitsi F, Lori B. White. I think it's Kill42. It's K-E-I-L. I'm sorry if I pronounced it wrong, honey. And our old friend Mojo Lobster never <laughs> fails us. Thank you. Y'all. Thank you guys for your really nice reviews. We love you all for that. We appreciate those so much. Um, and our Patreons is Colt Sisson and Jen Castro. Thank you guys for your support. We just appreciate y'all more than you ever know. The reviews mean a whole lot to us, and you all mean a whole lot to us, and we hope you all never forget it. Absolutely. And before we bring Leslie on, a uh, reminder again, the podcast brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce, and we're going to have a bunch of free stuff to give away at the live event. So. Sounds good. All right. It is time for the Fear of the Week. You are listening to the Fear of the Week. With author Leslie Fear. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of Fear of the Week, episode 23 with author Leslie Fear. You can pick up all of her books on Amazon.com, including a new one that has not been released yet. comes out in August, but it is on pre-order. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you guys. It's good to be here, as usual. Tell us a little bit about your book that's coming out on pre-order. Well, it is a book uh, published by uh, 100 Road Media, and it is a... uh, Another paranormal romance. You know me. I don't like to give away too much about uh, what the book's about. I like everybody to go in blind, but it is my normal um, writing genre, and uh, I think you'll like it. And I think it might be a two book series, if I'm not mistaken. So, wow, cool, yeah, awesome, so, yay, yeah. It's it's good. It's very different. My books are all different. They're not just about vampires and you know and ghosts. You know, although I don't have one on vampires. I do have one on a ghost, but not a vampire. All right, so Leslie, this is the first episode that we've done since we've went now to the bi-weekly Fear of the Week, which will be a part of our Sunday night episode. What is the first topic that you're going to dazzle us with? We are going to talk about gangrene, baby. I assume you're talking about the defense of the Philadelphia Eagles. That's exactly right. So let's get our sports stats going here. You got your fantasy football teams going? Let's go. Okay. Right now I've got COVID-19 at wide receiver, uh, coronavirus at quarterback. I'm telling you, that's about right. Actually, uh, and we're all the tight ends. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's a good, good one. <laughs> Just bend over, baby. Nice. Oh, that's sad. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, gangrene. Let's let's talk about just what it is first. What is gangrene? Okay, I think most people know, but let's just, I'm just going to read the definition. The definition is the localized death and decomposition of body tissue resulting from either obstructed circulation or bacterial infection. Mm. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah. And, and an illness, you could also have an illness like diabetes or something like that, like severe diabetes. You know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. It's not, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, now, what does it look like? We're going to talk about the signs that you have it. Now, the first thing you'll see is your skin is discolored, and it ranges in color from blue, purple, black, bronze, or even red. And this sm uh, the swelling um, of the formation of the of the blister is filled with their fluid, and their color is you know kind of gross and stuff. That's a, that's like wet gangrene when it gets gross and blistery and stuff. Yeah, I'll tell I'll talk more about that later. But yeah, that's that's not good. That's not fun. Can you imagine looking down and seeing uh, no? Seeing something wet and black on your toe, <laughs> you know, yeah. or your hand, or mm. your foot, you know, or not yeah. even realizing you do it. Right, right. If you, you don't know, know what it is. Because some people don't even have the feeling down there. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I had a grandfather that um, had diabetes, and I didn't know him very well because we just weren't that close in that family unit. But um, I, did, I do remember seeing his foot, and it was not good. It was mm -hmm. bad. Uh, he was severely overweight, though. So. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, okay, so gangrene <clears throat> can spread very quickly if it's not treated. It can even kill you, and it can kill you within 48 hours. That's how fast it can kill you. Wow. That kind of threw, threw me for a loop because I was thinking, I didn't think it would go that quickly, but I guess the infection can get in your blood, and once yeah. that happens, it travels. So that's kind of not fun. Jerry, what do you think so far? I, mean, I, I would have never guessed it was... 48 hours i would have thought it would have been like over a period of a couple of weeks at, at, the, yeah. at the earliest i would th well and don't get me wrong it's probably uh they were just saying the, the part that i was reading once it starts it's really not good like it's it, even if it's in your toe it's bad you know and it can't it, it may take longer for some people but they say it can take only 48 hours to kill some, someone and that just blows me away but do you want to, do you want to hear about the really nice fun part about gangrene and the things that they do to treat it? Absolutely. Sure. Do you know that uh, they use maggots? I think we had. I, I knew they use maggots for some stuff. I didn't necessarily knew it was for gangrene, but it makes sense. It is a non-surgical way to remove dead tissue, baby. <laughs> mm. Are you with me, okay, Tracy? You go. You you doing okay, honey? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which is worse, the maggots or the green green. I well, I know, and it's funny because I was listening to um, the podcast, what or the uh, YouTube channel. The who's the uh, the funeral director? Oh ask yeah, I know you're talking. Yeah, ask, ask a mortician. mortician. And she was talking about maggots on one of her shows, and she said that when they bring some of the dead bodies in, they can't. Uh, sometimes it's hard for them to get rid of the maggots in the body. They're like impossible to kill. Oh. I know. I, I can't. Oh, can you imagine? Yuck. Okay. I start so, to. I start to say. You know, might be a little <laughs> bit of a spoiler alert, but by the time she gets them, I don't think the maggots are going to help. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were actually they were talking about people that were so badly. when they're so badly decomposed. Uh. So yeah. Okay, so <laughs> Okay, so uh so when they use the maggots, th what they do is they uh they get the ones that are from like the laboratory specifically because they need them to be sterile. 
I mean, so that's good. At least they're not just getting well, off some kind of trash can somewhere. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's put another uh, a bacterial infection in your body besides yeah. the maggots. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, let's get some maggots that can't have kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, I just got that. Jeez. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> you are bad. Tracy hit him for me. Just smack him. There we go. See? That's there my sunburn. Go. Oh, I got him good. Extra good. <laughs> you did good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, okay, so what they do is, obviously, they just they eat the actual bad, bad tissue, and they leave the healthy stuff. So that's good. So we're going to talk about the types of gangrene. Now, the, the types are, there's a dry gangrene that's, like, probably on a, a toe. Um, that one is not the deadly one. So I should have probably told you it's more the wet gangrene or the gas gangrene. And I'll tell you more about those later that are the most deadly. And that's probably, I should have clarified that before. So the, the dry gangrene is like a sh the shriveled skin, you know, it looks kind of like leather. It's purple, kind of black. Okay. You, you, we've all, we all kind of know what that is. Now the wet gangrene, that's the one where there's swelling, blistering, you know, it's wet in appearance. Pussy. And all that. Pussy. Yeah, 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 yeah. The gas gangrene, now that's the one that's really lethal too. Um, and it's caused by, of course, the bacterial infection and it develops within the injury or a surgical wound can cause that too. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But there's one here I want to talk about. It's just, this is going to make everybody really happy because you know what? Have you ever heard of uh, four nears gangrene? No. no. It's an acute infection of the scrotum, penis, or perineum. Mm. What's a perineum? Uh, it's between the scrotum and the uh, rectum. Oh, your taint. Yeah, I was going to say taint. Yeah, well, that's a <laughs> lovely word for it. <laughs> We're country folk around here. It's <laughs> oh, hilarious. But I got to tell you, this one, I'm telling you, you are... The taint. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, it's caused by the thrombosis of small blood cells, uh, vessels below the skin. But hmm. guess what? I got good news for you guys. Guess who had it? Who? Harvey Weinstein. Oh, oh well. well. He deserved, deserved it. Yes. He did deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> he had foreign, he had the gangrene and it, and he needed a he needed penis injections before he could have sex and victims spoke about his deformed penis because of this gangrene he had. Uh, it was first discovered uh, by a man named uh, Jean Alfred Fourniers in 1883 and that's where it got the name uh gangrene. But Harvey Weinstein, the little son of a gun, got it too. So I'm glad. He's still suffering because guess what? It's it doesn't ever go away. He they can only stop the infection. They really can't make it better. I guess the injections do it, but he's not doing a whole lot in prison. So there you go. Now you know a little bit more about gangrene. And and I know you didn't touch on it, but people who have gangrene, there's also a horrendous smell that comes along with it. Yes, there. there yes, there is. Um, and yeah, well, it's dead tissue. I sure. mean, it's just, especially the, the wet and the gas gangrene, they're both really not good. Yeah. 
not to be confused with like abscesses or something. They don't have the same smell. They're not right. dead tissue. They're just inf- really bad infections. But this is like death. This is like dead tissue. This is like opening your trash can because you because you threw away some chicken that you didn't realize was still in the package, and it smells like that. Blech. That's yeah. disgusting. <laughs> that is not a good smell. No, but uh, you know, there you go. I hope you guys enjoyed my uh, my little gangrene action there. Mm, I loved it. That was very interesting, for real. Yeah. <laughs> you hated it, Tracy. You know you did, and that's okay because it was pretty gross. Mm-hmm. But I'll have more. I'll have more to come next time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us this week, You're Leslie, welcome. and we're glad to see this segment continue to go after we initially announced that we were not going to be doing it. Well, I'm so glad that you kept me on. I'm glad everybody liked me and wanted me to stay with you guys. So thank you guys for your support and your encouragement. And it's at the and- same rate of pay, correct? It is. It is. Zero. It's, it's all about. It's all about gratitude. You know what? Y- y'all pay me so well just talking about my books and and let me talk to you guys because it's a, it's a it's always a pleasure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. Okay, I'll see myself out. All right, guys. That wraps up this edition of Hillbilly Horror Stories this week. Hope you had a good time. Yes, we do, and we look forward to seeing you guys uh, next Saturday. And I hope y'all have a blessed week. We love you. <laughs>